Our scripture lesson this morning is from Matthew's gospel as we complete our journey down the gratitude path for a while. I hope we don't give up on this notion of gratitude ever. But um, for this particular series, we come to a conclusion today and head in some new directions next week as we prepare for Advent and the coming of the Christ child. But for today, Matthew chapter 13, beginning with verse 54. This is a gospel lesson, and I will ask you to stand as you are able for the reading of the Holy Gospel. Matthew chapter 13, beginning with verse 54. He came to his hometown and began to teach the people in their synagogue so that they were astounded and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these deeds of power? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all this? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, Prophets are not without honor except in their own country and in their own house. And he did not do many deeds of power there because of their unbelief. This is the word of God for the people of God. You may be seated. So today is the day. The day when we ask ourselves if this gratitude path we've been traveling on has brought us to a place called generosity, or at least brought us a little bit closer to that destination, that delightful destination. I want us to begin by reviewing some of the signs and markers that we have passed along the way on this gratitude path. It's not been a straight path, like a a paved road. We think of our spiritual journey sometimes in linear terms, like it's all laid out. But the, the gratitude path has had its ups and its downs and its curves and its bends. But if we stay with it, it will take us to a place called generosity. On October the 14th, we started on the path by just saying thank you. It sounds so simple, so often ignored. Luke chapter 10, the story of the 10 lepers, one who came back to say thanks. A 10% gratitude rate is not very good, is it? It's almost like it's a tithe of, of the generosity of God. October the 21st, we contemplated what it means to give thanks in all circumstances. Easy to say, hard to do. Paul helped us to frame that conversation with his words from 1 Thessalonians. On October the 28th, we talked about giving and receiving, about expressing gratitude as we give, about what comes back to us. It's not like a financial transaction with a guaranteed rate of return. Truth is, it's a lot more than that. Try it. Just try it more than once. Embrace yourself because God might just bless the socks off of you. You never know. November the 4th was All Saints Day, and we remembered the saints of this church who have departed us in this past year. And we looked at their example, and we remembered their gratitude and their generosity. We need examples. We need folks to help us along the way. And they are now part of that great cloud of witnesses. They're that cheering throng in the stadium. They're pulling for us. We believe they're still there. 
And last Sunday we took a close look at what it means to be a cheerful giver. The Apostle Paul reminding us that God loves a cheerful giver. And we did talk about something else that Paul did not say, but he might have said, God loves a cheerful giver, but God will take it from a grouch. So. One of our points was that we should not wait until we're cheerful till we start to give, but we give our way to cheerfulness and, and to joy, and then we keep adding to the joy as we keep passing on the blessings that God has just poured abundantly into our hearts and into our lives. All of these signs and markers along the gratitude path are pointing us to a magnificent place called generosity. It's a location that would be hard to beat. If you're looking for somewhere to buy a lot and build a house and make a life, let me recommend generosity to you. And I want to say just a little bit more now about the dynamics of a place called generosity. What's it like there? Why would we want to be there? What, what can we expect? And some of these thoughts were prompted by an article I read called Live Gratefully, Live Generously. And it was by a guy named Scott McKenzie. And he talks about how in a village of Malawi where families were literally starving, Scott and some of his friends experienced some of the most amazing generosity they had ever encountered anywhere. He said it was the height of the famine in the early 2000s in Malawi, the height of AIDS. Villages were being devastated. Folks were starving to death. In fact, the pastor in that particular village in Malawi had starved, had died of starvation, malnutrition. As Mackenzie's group prepared to leave, the people of the village came out and they were dancing, he said, and they were singing and they were bearing gifts. And the only gift they gave was food. Their children are starving. They are starving. The pastor of the church in the village had starved to death and they gave us food. Though Mackenzie and others in their group tried to refuse, their interpreter told them, no, you can't, you must take the food. You have to take the food because they are so grateful you came. Don't deny them the privilege of giving and showing their gratitude. This is a sideline, and I could chase this rabbit for a while, but I won't. But I've known folks who have a real difficulty accepting any kind of gift or any kind of gracious gesture. And if we fall into that category sometimes, we might want to remember what this interpreter said. Don't deny them the privilege of showing their gratitude. Mackenzie said, I don't think anybody in our delegation had a dry eye. It was amazing. He never mentions the name of the village in Malawi where this might have happened. I'm thinking it might have been a place called Generosity. He went on to say, Generosity is grounded in a real sense of gratitude. When I look at my life, the whole thing is a gift from the hand of a gracious and generous God. The things that I have, they're not mine. I don't own them. So when I have a grateful heart and realize that it's all a gift, then I'm much more likely to share those blessings. And there's another person in that same article. Her name was Betsy Schwarzentraub, and she paints, um, I think, a really neat word picture of what generosity looks like. 
She said, generosity is our passion of giving out of who we are and what we have in gratitude for God's generosity. God's self-giving love as expressed in Jesus Christ and shown to us day after day by the power of the Holy Spirit. And then Scott McKenzie, going back to him for just a moment and closing out, he said, I want us to have a good feel for this place where we're headed. He said, if you really want somebody to begin practicing generosity, tell them to begin practicing gratitude. Gratitude and generosity will change human lives. And now for today, we cross over the city limits and the generosity. I want to explore the topic that is before us. Expect a miracle. Expect a miracle. Our story for today from Matthew tells about that. This is the day we continue to receive gratitude, generosity, commitment cards, if you have those, or if you're praying about them still, and we'll send them in later. I can't think of a better time when we're looking at our commitment, prayers, presence, gifts, service, and witness, than to think about expecting a miracle. Can we do that? Is that beyond our imagination? Of course, I understand folks have different ideas about what a miracle is. Miracles some people see as extraordinary events, things beyond rational explanation, things that we just cannot get a handle on. They're so wonderful. But other folks see miracles in everyday sort of happenings. The birth of a child, the first grandchild, the opening of a flower, the rising and the setting of the sun. Miracles are a result of divine initiative. Most of us would agree, but just What constitutes a miracle? Some folks would disagree with one another. We see it differently. According to Matthew, or according to the New Testament, I'm sorry, miracles are performed by, if you look through the folks in the New Testament, who are doing these miracles, number one, by God, number two, by God through an angel, number three, by Jesus, number four, by the apostles, number five, by disciples and missionaries and other ordinary Christians, and even by bad, false, and unbelieving disciples performing miracles, by non-disciples, by Jews and pagans and Pharisees, miracles were a part of the landscape. They were a part of the furniture of the world in that day. And according to one scholar, miracles belong to the realm of the possible. The fact that they happen is an accepted part of the worldview of most people, but their meaning is disputed. The gospel lesson for today begins with Jesus coming to his hometown, teaching the people in their synagogue. They were astounded. You know how it is when you know somebody when they're small, and and later they just become something, wow, amazing. And and you think, is that so-and-so's child? Could this really be happening? And they they were asking, where did this man get this wisdom, these deeds of power? Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't this Mary's boy? Don't we know his siblings? Where did, they, where did he get all of this? And bless their hearts, they were offended by him. Jesus said, prophets are not without honor except in their own country and in their own house. And he did not do many miracles there because of their unbelief. Or as the New International Version says, he did not do many miracles there because of their lack of faith. Matthew leaves Jesus' town, hometown, unannounced here or unnamed. The references to Jesus' family indicate it's Nazareth, 
where Jesus grew up, rather than Capernaum that became the center of his ministry later on. The synagogue folk do not doubt that Jesus speaks and acts with authority. The issue is the source of this authority. The hometown folks were doubting this hometown boy who was doing so well and doing so much. They did not doubt his ability to do miracles, but unbelief and a lack of faith put him in the category where they really didn't expect that when he came home. And the kingdom represented by Jesus, they in a sense rejected all of that. There are only two sides, aren't there, in this cosmic struggle that we are engaged in, good and evil. And these people for a while were wearing the jerseys of the opposing team. They were having difficulty with all this. And Jesus, after this point, never returned to Nazareth as far as we know. Now, in our guidebook for this journey, the generosity journey, the place we're headed, Kent Millard, in the book we've been talking about, and many of you have been reading, and we've got some copies. It's not too late. I would urge you to to ask me, and we'll, we'll find a copy for you. He reminds us that as followers of Jesus, we believe that he performed many wonderful miracles during his time here on earth. The Gospels are full of stories about Jesus healing folks who are blind or deaf or unable to walk or mentally ill or afflicted with leprosy, a variety of skin diseases that made people unclean, so to speak. We also believe that God performed the greatest miracle of all time when he raised Jesus from death unto life. Not just at Easter, but all the time. However, we often, he said, have a hard time believing that God still does these surprising and wondrous things in our world today. We have trouble getting our hearts and our heads around that. We have become so logical and so rational that if somebody begins to tell us about a miracle that has occurred in their life, we sort of look at them sideways. We're a little bit skeptical. We might take a step back and and not want to get too close to those kind of people. And then Kent Millard retells the story that we've just finished retelling, ending with that thought-provoking statement, and he did not do many miracles there because of their unbelief, their lack of faith. Undoubtedly, there were more people in Nazareth who were sick, who were paralyzed, who had all kinds of ailments and brokenness and hurt and pain in their life, and they were left like that, left unhealed, and Jesus left town. He did few miracles there because of their unbelief. It was a climate sort of thing, wasn't it? There was a climate of disbelief there, and even Jesus wouldn't work in that climate as he did elsewhere. Kent Millard wonders, and from time to time, so do I, how many miracles in this world, in our lives, in our churches, and elsewhere, how many miracles go unperformed because of our unbelief? Or maybe they happen and we just can't see them. Like the people of Nazareth, many church leaders don't believe in God's power to perform miracles. We think if we can't pull this off in our own strength, in our own power, with our own resources, then it's not going to happen. And so we don't experience much of what God would like to give us. 
In our world, folk often say they don't believe it until they see it, and even then they wonder if it's been photoshopped or doctored or something else. They have to see it to believe it. The truth is, I believe, that we have to believe in miracles before we see them happen. Belief comes first. Theologian and author and favorite writer of mine, though I've never met him, I would love to someday. I think he's in his upper 80s by now. Frederick Bigner would agree with Kent Millard's assertion. He said, a cancer inexplicably cured, a voice in a dream, a statue that weeps. A miracle is an event that strengthens faith. It is possible to look at most miracles and find a rational explanation in terms of cause and effect. It is possible to look, he said, at Rembrandt's Supper at Emmaus and find a rational explanation in terms of paint and canvas. Faith in God is less apt to proceed from miracles than miracles from faith in God. I was stumbling around some this past week looking for the right words to kind of start bringing this to a a close and and to speak to us as a church and as individuals. And I recalled an article that I had read and printed out and kept and found it. It's an online resource. It's called Leading Ideas. It's from the Wesley Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C., a United Methodist Seminary. It's an online thing, and I would urge you to take a look at it if you don't have enough to read or even... If you've got too much to read, just some good stuff there. This article was by Lovett Weems, who who put all this together and has sort of stepped aside a little bit. He said, church leaders stand today between a past that is gone and a future awaiting its consummation. God's leaders are deeply steeped in the memory of God's great acts in history in our denomination, in our congregations, our local churches. And at the same time, God has placed them, placed us, all of us, in a context that has many challenges. In truth, this has always been the stance from which God's people lead, he said. The Babylonian exile, way back in the Old Testament, offers lessons about living in the confident tension between a past that is gone and a future that is still unfolding. Because of God's promise. People of faith, he said, are always and always living and serving between memory and vision. Isaiah reflects both of these dimensions. Memory is captured in the call. You remember these words of the prophet when he said, Look to the rock from which you were hewn and the quarry from which you were dug. Yet the forward pull of God's vision is seen in Isaiah also. I'm about to do a new thing. Now it springs forth. (laughs) Can't you see it? Don't you perceive it? So the article goes on to outline some unproductive choices that are before us. When we are thinking about the future and gratitude and miraculous attitudes and beliefs in God's church. He said one unproductive choice is focusing only on memory and losing sight of the challenges that are before us today. Another choice is focusing on vision of what's to come, but becoming disconnected 
and rootless from our past. Worst of all, he said, is forgetting the past with no vision for the future. This will send churches into maintenance mode, settling for survival. It often leads to death, a slow death, and an expression he uses I've never heard before, death on the installment plan. (laughs) Memory and vision, we need them both. One without the other is problematic. To leave them both behind is deadly. Expect a miracle. As a church, how is our expector looking? We checked it out recently. Can we imagine, can we envision Noonan First United Methodist Church filled in here and in the parish hall on Sunday mornings and those same worshipers, us and others, studying and serving and inviting others and going away from this place to share the grace of God with those around us who are hurting and don't know where to turn. How, if we believe that God would provide for what we need to accomplish that mission, how would that change the way we conduct committee meetings? How would that impact our morale? And our morale is very good. But would it raise it to some new levels? Imagine, imagine that. Imagine coming to a point as a church where the first question we ask when we consider a ministry is not, can we afford it? But is this what God is calling us to do? And if it is, do we believe in miracles? Because sometimes That change in heart and change in thinking requires a miracle. Maybe there are things in our home life, in our personal lives, that we need a miraculous outlook. So I would say to each of us and to our families and to our church family, let's not allow our unbelief to ever stand in the way of God working miracles in our hearts and in this place. And for that I'm grateful. We serve a miracle working God and he's still up to it. May God help us to see it and experience it. Always. Amen.